Let's stand together and we're going to read from God's Word from 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, an aim of glorifying the Savior who is by our side and did stand in our place. 2 Peter chapter 2, we're going to read together verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to study uh, verses 4 through 11. But it's been a couple of weeks since we've been together in our study of 2 Peter, and so I've just to put back in context where we are, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that the Word of God is accurately proclaimed, accurately and clearly understood. And then, God, we pray that we believe and live it out. It's a warning for us that false teaching is persistent, Many will believe it. We're asking for grace that we not be among those. We've not sought to bring in any secret and destructive heresies, but we seek to openly and boldly proclaim the truth of your word. And we ask help in this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I love to read, and I love to read good books, and I love to read good biographies, and in particular, I really enjoy American history and to read uh, uh, some of the uh, men like John Adams or Abraham Lincoln and the way that they think and reason. And I've got a fear, and here's my fear. I'm afraid that social media and texting is about to kill the English language. Anybody share this concern with me? I've got a few pet peeves. I'm just going to go on and get them off my chest this morning uh, because I'm afraid that the ramifications are... Uh, significant. The ramifications to, for all of you texters are TBD, but the effects are mostly OTW, and I'm afraid the good things are never going to BRB, if that makes sense. I got a couple of things. Is, is one, uh, when you text somebody and uh, you ask about things and then check up on them and then ask if they're going to do something, whatever it might be, has anybody ever gotten back one letter and the one letter is the letter K? Has that ever happened to you, right? Now, texting is quick, but I always wonder, how, how much time have we saved by not just typing the O, right? Is it that much effort to just go on and do the OK? And, and, then, and then, when you text somebody and they write you back, thanks, but they spell it T-H-X. Never happened. Now, here's my, here's my all-time. I'm going to put two words on the screen because we just got to deal with this right now. We're just going to have to deal with it. We got it, and we're going to deal with it publicly and clearly, and we're going to deal with it right now. These two words, friends, are not the same. They do not have the same meaning. They have different definitions, and we just all need to figure out what those two definitions are. Right? The top word "your" is a possessive word. It means it belongs to you. 
The bottom word is a contraction of two other English words, you and are. And so the bottom word is you are, you're. you're. So, for example, now this, this is hypothetical, totally hypothetical. If you're ever going to tell someone that you're welcome, which word do you use? All right? You're going to use the bottom word, right? Because you're not saying you're welcome as if the welcome belongs to you. If you say thank you, and then their response is you're welcome, I, I don't need a welcome. It's not my welcome. You're telling me I possess a welcome. That doesn't, thank you, I possess a welcome. That doesn't even make any sense. You need to say you are welcome. When I'm asking someone you're sure, I'm not asking if they possess a sure. That doesn't even make any sense, right? I'm asking if you are sure. The words sound the same, but they have different meanings. They look similar, but they mean different things. Okay, let's have the invitation. We're done. That's just all I wanted to cover this morning. We got a hymn to sing or something. No, I'm just teasing, but we can go on and take those words down from the screen because what we're talking about is we're actually talking about Second Peter, and Peter's writing his last letter. It's his last words that he has to say, and a majority of the content of his message to these people and his final message to them is about false teaching. And here's the deal with false teaching is very frequently it will sound similar to real true teaching, but the definitions are the same. They might even use the same words, but we're talking about different things. So when you hear teaching, you want to know, because I'll tell you what, friends, they don't just take an apostrophe out. False teaching takes Jesus out. False teaching takes the cross out. False teaching takes the necessity of faith and repentance out. False teaching thrives on words that sound the same as true teaching, but it's all in the definition of the terms. Look at what he says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, they, false teachers, there will be false teachers among you who will obviously bring in destructive teaching. No. Who will clearly bring in, the word is secretly bring in destructive heresies. I mean, the teaching is destructive. It will destroy lives. It will destroy families. It will destroy your understanding of who you are. It will destroy your understanding of who God is. And it threatens to destroy you for eternity, right? We're not being melodramatic. We're being serious here. False teaching is a significant threat to your eternity. So when Peter says uh, over here in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 14, I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus made clear to me. I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. And then he goes on, and for the majority of his letter from that point forward, it's on the subject of false teaching. Well, to use his phrase, we will do well to pay attention. It's been a couple of weeks since we were in Second Peter, and so just by way of reminder, uh, we made these observations, the common characteristics of false teaching based on verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2 is 1, false teachings persistently in the world. 2, it rarely seems false. 3, it always gets Jesus wrong. We're just tracking along with what he r- writes. 4, false teaching is always popular. False teaching is going to sell a lot of books, have a lot of interviews, get a lot of time on um, television. False teaching has an ally in sensuality. Verse 2, many will follow their sensuality. And then two more is false teaching always ridicules the truth and belittles the truth. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And number four, where we pick up this morning, or not number four, but the last one we pick up this morning, 
is all false teaching will ultimately be destroyed. End of verse 3, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So as we're tracking together, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 11, the section that we're going to study, is an elaboration on verse 3. Their destruction is not idle, or um, uh, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, their destruction is not asleep. And now verses 4 through 11 is sort of going to unpack that statement. Peter's a good teacher, so Peter's now going to do what any good teacher does. And uh, having established a truth, he's now going to give illustration of it, give examples. And that's verses 4 through 11. So that's what we'll read now. Verse 4, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of, chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, Greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the righteous, unrighteous rather, under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority." Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Well, if you've got an outline and want to follow along in that manner, just go on and put the main idea of the whole sermon right here at the front end. And it's this, it's the main idea of what Peter just said. God judges those who disregard his warnings and commands while he protects those who remain faithful to him. My preaching class, and we were taught, if you ever preach a sermon, you need to summarize the whole sermon in one sentence, and that's the summary, right? We want the main idea of the sermon, it's the other mark of faithful preaching, by the way, the main idea of the sermon is the main idea of the passage, right? So that's the main idea of the passage, therefore it's the main idea of the sermon. God judges those who disregard his warnings and commands while he protects those who remain faithful to him. Y'all, on that main idea, we're not going to get past the first two words before the red flags go up in our culture. Because the very first two words in that main idea are the two words that people have a very hard time with. And it's the two words that a lot of false teaching tries to circumnavigate around, not bring up, dismiss, or deny. Now, where does the notion that God judges being a, being a, a thing that is taught against originate. Well, let's go back here. Genesis, hold your spot there. Second Peter, let's go back to Genesis chapter 3, where the fall is described. And I want you to see what the first outright lie by the sneaky, bringing in secretive, secretly bringing in destructive heresies, what the very first lie is here in the garden. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, 
Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. The first line in the garden is in verse 4. And that lie is that there will never, ever, ever, ever be a judgment. It's the first lie. You shall not surely die. Now we're reading in English, the original book of Genesis was written in Hebrew. Hebrew was the original language, and the statement, you shall not surely die, is stated in the Hebrew language as emphatically as can be stated. Hebrew doesn't have exclamation points, but they have manners um, uh, of emphasizing uh, things in a, in, a, in a way that the equivalent for us would be about five exclamation points when the devil says, you shall not surely die. The original lie is this, we can do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want, and there will be no consequences for disobeying God. The question is often brought up, although not quite articulated this way, is what gives God the right to judge? And that right, friends, is articulated in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. Now, here's a way we talk about the subject of false teaching. What the scripture outlines is that God is a God of initiative. Amen? He's a good God, and he takes the initiative. As you track the flow of, um, of the scripture, God takes the initiative in three ways. One, we just read, God takes the initiative in creation. God has created God was there at the beginning and he spoke. God took the initiative in creation. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the words of his or the works of his hands. You ought to be able to look out in creation and see that God created everything that you see. You should see, oh, well, Romans 1 verses 19 and 20 puts it best. What, we, what may be known about God is plain because God has made it plain. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. God took the initiative in creation. And then secondly, God's taken the, crea- the initiative not only in creation, but he's also taken the initiative in revelation. We know what we know about God because he has chosen to reveal it to us. Hebrews chapter 1 Verses 1 and 2. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. God has taken the initiative in creation. God has taken the initiative in revelation. And God has taken the initiative. God has taken the initiative in salvation. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. John 3.17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. God has taken initiative in creation, revelation, salvation. So false teaching 
is always going to be on the basis of one of those things. A different teaching about how we all got here, a different teaching about what we're doing here now, and a different teaching about where we are going. I think everybody should understand that when you hold something that's often referred to as a worldview, you've got to answer three basic questions. Where did we come from? What are we doing here now? And where are we going? Do you see how, the, how you answer those questions goes together? If you answer the first question, where did we come from, by believing the theory that we all got here as a result of a really, really big explosion and billions and billions of years of evolution, that has significant consequences on how you view the world, doesn't it? Significant consequences on how you view morality, significant consequences on how you view yourself and how you view other people. And it sets the table, by the way, of how you'll answer the next questions. What are we doing here? If we came from nothing, guess what we're doing here? Not really anything. And where are we going? Nowhere. We came from nothing. There's no real reason that we're here. We're headed for nowhere. Now, if you really think through that, it has significant consequences for your life. Significant consequences on how you treat people. and has significant consequences on how you view yourself. Because origins inform existence and purpose, and existence and purpose informs destiny. And it all works together. Now, Peter gives us three devastating examples of believing false teaching. Now, if our origins are nothing created something, then we all got here, but we don't really know what we're doing, we don't really know why we're here, then you've got to create up a scenario for yourself that ultimately really has no bearing on anybody else. (laughs) And then we don't still know where we're going. The Bible teaches that we've got two things going on in our hearts. We've talked about them before, and they're results of the fall. That we believe we're autonomous, and we believe we're self-sufficient. We don't really need God. If we believe there even is a God, then we're autonomous. And then therefore we're self-sufficient. But is that actually true? Well, there have been a lot of people who believe those things. But what we come back to here is this biblical teaching that there is a judgment. Because here's what's true. If you just follow the sequence here, if he's created and he's revealed himself and he sent a savior, then there will be an accountability for these things. Because um, the only way that there's not a judgment coming is if it's true we are autonomous and self-sufficient. So the stakes are pretty high here, friends, right? And the gospel teaches us that the one to whom we will give an account is the one who first has taken our place. That we will give an account to him, and the account, by the way, is that we deserve condemnation. But the gospel teaches that God became a man and took the consequences that we deserve. So let's look together as as Peter gives these three examples. One about angels who sinned, one about the generation of Noah, and one about the generation of Lot to inform us in our own day. So first of all, the first point is this. We'll take straight from what Peter writes here is God's judgment against the ungodly is certain. God's judgment against the ungodly is certain. God will not allow unrighteousness to reign indefinitely. The peculiar thing is, as um, 
as I listen and read uh, the writings of those who don't follow Jesus and don't believe in God and don't believe the gospel and, and kind of think someone like me, a, a, a Baptist preacher of all things, teaching the Word of God is about the most absurd thing in the, in the world. And I, there's kind of two things going on at once. Is One, why aren't the unrighteous things going on in the world called to an account? And then, number two, there's no judgment, which are two strangely opposed things, aren't they? This cry for justice which doesn't really make sense if there is no God, and, and, and then secondly, an insistence that there will be no judgment. Well, Peter writes that God's judgment against the ungodly is certain. I mean, we're all unrighteous, but we all understand that justice ought to be done. Amen? I mean, justice ought to be done. People who are hurt and harmed by sin, there, there should be an accounting that takes place. And what Peter is writing here is, you can rest assured that that is going to happen. He gives these three examples. The first, truth be told, is we don't know a lot of details about verse 4. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Now, what we can say is that God had angels and they rebelled against him. Powerful angelic beings led by Lucifer himself sinned and rebelled against God and God committed them to chains of gloomy darkness darkness now we don't have in the bible every last detail of specifically what peter is referring to and there are plenty of interesting theories if you want to read about those but the main point we need to see is if created beings much more powerful than human beings attempted to rebel against god and were unsuccessful then created and much less powerful and influential beings called humans are not going to be able to pull off that rebellion. Now we're given greater detail and information in Genesis about the two other examples Peter cites here. First, the generation of Noah, and then second, Lot as he lived in Sodom. In both examples, Peter is very clear about what happened. So let's read, and you see the actions that God does in these examples. Verse 5, if he, God, did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly and if he rescued Lot greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked for as the righteous man lived among them day after day he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard then it's pretty simple you all know how an argument is made if then so if in both examples god judges and protects right in noah's day and then if god judges and preserves and protects in lot's day then you can know that the same will happen in your life god brought certain judgment on the ungodly what peter writes here he did not spare now those of you who love the bible did that bring a phrase to your mind elsewhere? He who did not spare his only son, but graciously gave him, how will he not with him give us all things? I need you to hold on to that because we're coming back to it in just a moment. Because we need to understand God's judgment against the ungodly is certain. When I read that, you know what the Bible tells me? That I'm ungodly. So right up, right, right now, I'm up front 
with a huge problem in my life. I'm ungodly. God's judgment against the ungodly is certain. What possible hope do I have? You're in, uh, well, just turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. We see in Peter, he's referring to what was. Revelation shows us what will be. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, the Apostle John writes, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Now, friends, one thing that we've learned in our day is uh, these things called Facebook and Google and so on. Those are powerful technologies. And did you know that they got a whole lot of information about you? I got an email this week that said, just click on such and such in your Facebook accounts and you'll be blown away. And I did, and I couldn't believe. They, they know pretty much everything about me, right? Been tracking everything I post, every picture I put up. They know me to a degree. But when this book is opened, there isn't anything hidden. He's got it all. He's seen it all. He's the one who's going to judge. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them. There's a singularity to that phrase, each one of them. In other words, we're not judging on a curve, right? Don't get to stand with ten people, then you choose, and you know, just you. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, I know, I know, most of the people you know, and perhaps many people in this room this morning, they don't believe that. And they don't believe it any more than the generation of Noah believed the flood was going to come or any more than the generation of Lot believed fire was going to fall down from the sky. But God's judgment against the ungodly is certain. Secondly, Peter tells us that God's judgment against the ungodly is final. It's final. These examples that he cites, once judgment was given, there was no appeals process, right? Who are you going to appeal to who has jurisdiction over God? When God gives a final judgment, where else are we to go? Now, on one hand, that has great urgency for those who don't believe. On another hand, that has great comfort for those who do. He who did not spare his only son, but righteously or graciously gave him up for us, how will he not with him also graciously give us all things? Who is to condemn it is God who saves. That's what Romans 8 teaches us. Now, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 16. When Jesus speaks about judgment, he uses two examples. And I bet you're already going to be able to guess what examples he uses. Peter likely used his examples because he had heard Jesus talk about these things. So Luke chapter 16, verse 26 
Luke chapter 16, verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be. Something was informs us of what will be. So it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. What's Jesus teaching us? As it was, so it will be. Uh, he's teaching us that the judgment comes unexpectedly for most people, right? It comes, as he's saying, when they're going about their everyday lives. What's for lunch today? How'd work go today? You going to so-and-so's wedding? Have you got their wedding gift yet? Right? I mean, just ordinary, everyday lives. They're not thinking about it. They're oblivious to it. And then the judgment comes, and the judgment is final. As it was on that day, so it will be. They had no thought of God, no thought of judgment, no repentance of their violence, no repentance of their sexual sin, no, no, no understanding of their imminent standing before God. Until the day. So are you ready for that day? Or are you just so blissfully unaware, drifting through life, not prepared? Friends, our hope, our hope is not that there will be no judgment. Our hope is that when judgment comes, someone has stood condemned in our place and has already received the punishment that the just judgment that we should have deserves. And that's the cross, friends, right? This is our hope. When Christ was crucified, <laughs> The Old Testament is just illustrating. The Old Testament is just illustrating what was to come in Christ. And you see two examples of how they were spared, right? Noah gets in an ark, and uh, Lot gets up and gets out. So a phrase you could use is, one of them got in, and one of them got out. The way that we are spared is not, man, the floods won't come, the fire won't come, so on and so forth. There is no judgment. No, the hope we have is we get in a place that we can't be touched or we get out of a place that's going to be destroyed. And the only safe place is, and the New Testament uses this phrase over and over and over, in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is not the same statement as there is therefore now no condemnation. You understand what I mean? There's only one safe place to go. So let's just ask it this way. Think about it this way. <laughs> How... Did Noah and Lot make it out? They listened to God and did what he said. Now, before we elaborate on that point, I think it's important for those of us who are followers of Jesus to examine what is said in 2 Peter about Noah and about Lot. Can you imagine how ridiculed Noah must have been as he built the ark? You know how long it took him? 120 years, right? I mean, about five years in, don't you think he started to hear it even that long? What are you doing? You're crazy. Why are you doing that? Why are you wasting your time? Why are you wasting your life? And I think it's important for you to see a picture of what goes on in Lot's life. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 19. 
Genesis chapter 19. Let's read this account of what goes on in Sodom and Gomorrah. In Noah's generation, the primary, not the only, but the primary sin that rose up to God's face, that's how he says it in Genesis 6, their violence has come up to my face. In Sodom and Gomorrah, the primary sin is their sexual sin. Genesis 19 verse 4 Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. They called out to Lot, where are the men who came with you tonight? Bring them out so that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters that have not known any man. Let Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they've come under the shelter of my roof. And they said, stand back. They said, this fellow came to sojourn. Look what they say. And he has become the judge. You just need to see this, right? If you ever try to stand in the face of gross sexual sin, that's what will be said to you. And look at verse 14. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. And, but he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. So just be prepared for that. Here's what will be said of you. You're too judgmental or you're a joke. You know what we see? Genesis chapter 19. Black words on white page, right? Now, this is also important for us, by the way. Now, Lot, man, if you've studied his life, <laughs> we understand that this is not a perfect man. He is a compromiser in so many ways. But there's a phrase that's said in Second Peter about Lot. Verse 8, as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds. It's going to bring us to the third point. Number three is God's rescue of the righteous is certain and complete. God's rescue of the righteous is certain and complete. Let's say a couple of things real quick uh, about what Noah and Lot have in common. Number one, Noah is called a herald of righteousness. Herald is a word that means he spoke. He spoke out loud. He spoke for others to hear. He's a herald of righteousness. He's a warning. He lives his life warning people around him of the judgment that is to come, right? In other words, by his words and his actions, he lived among them as a witness, And certainly, without question, he was ridiculed, made fun of, outright persecuted, right? But ultimately delivered. Are you, in your own generation, a herald of righteousness? Are you a herald of righteousness? And second, here at Lot's description is that he was tormenting his righteous deeds. A couple things is... uh, those who seek to obey God are very frequently in the minority. 
So friends, don't be surprised if you find yourself the only one. Be surprised if you find yourself the only one in your family who loves Jesus. The only one at work who thinks the way that you do. The only one in your class who wants to walk with Jesus. Don't be surprised if you're the only one who hasn't seen that movie or the only one who's not up to date on that television show. Because when I read this, what came to my mind is, I don't know if we're like Lot, tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds. I'm, a, I'm afraid that too often we are entertained by their lawless deeds. Let me read this commentary by a man named Douglas Moo, who's a New Testament scholar. His commentary on that phrase, tormenting of the soul, he writes, Few Christians experience the torment of soul that Lot felt as he faced the ungodliness of his society. He writes, television illustrates this problem better than anything else. I do not need to tell you a great deal more sex, foul language, gratuitous violence are found on TV than was the case a decade ago. Most of us have continued to watch the programs as the sex and vulgarity have increased. The result? Many of us now watch things on TV without even flinching that would have greatly distressed us only a few years ago we are no longer shocked at it we have become insensitive to it now he wrote that in you ready for this 1996 22 years ago are his observations true then are they applicable now are you tormenting your righteous soul over ungodliness or do you find yourself saying, well, I, mean, I think most everyone in the room would say, I can sit down tonight at my television and see things that 20 years ago I wouldn't have sat and been entertained by. Here's the trade-off. You ready for the trade-off? We trade off any godly influence. I just have to ask, is entertainment that important for us? Is it that important? Well, Revelation 20, when we stand before the Lord on that day. You think there's any chance he's going to say, you know, I've looked over the books here and seen minute by minute. What you should have done is watched a little bit more television. If you had gone to the movies a few more times, that, that would have been really, do you understand what I'm saying? Let's put it all together. Secret, secretly being, bring in destructive heresies. Do you know how the secretly brought in destructive heresies are often done in our day? On that big flat screen. It's true, isn't it? Secretly bring in destructive heresies. So that when you stand up and say, well, this is unrighteous, this is not right, judgment is coming. Who made you a judge over us? Or you're just one big joke. We would do well to say, can those of us who have been made righteous by grace in Christ be entertained by unrighteousness? Is it possible to sit and watch and enjoy the very unrighteousness for which judgment's coming against? Can those longing to be rescued enjoy the very things from which we need rescuing? Oh, would our hearts be set on something else? You think Noah got in his lounge chair and watched the flood happen? You think Lot watched the sulfur fall with popcorn in his lap? How are we rescued? How was Noah rescued? 
By listening to God and doing as he said. How was, Lot, uh, how was Lot rescued? By listening to God and doing what he said. How was Peter rescued? By listening to God and doing what he said. How would you be rescued? God's rescue of the righteous is certain and complete. It's important because the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. The only righteous one is Jesus. He's the ark, friends. You know what I'm saying? He's the ark. There's not a bunch of boats you can jump on. There's only one. He's the only way out of Sodom. He's the only way out of judgment. He's the only one that can help us on the day that Revelation describes as the great white throne judgment that we'll all stand before. Now, here's kind of the deal. You can, you can believe the serpent. You will not surely die. It's nonsense. Educated people don't think like this. People who've actually read a book know that this is all nonsense, that backwards religion, that Baptist preacher, and you're, trust me, I know. I hear it all the time, right? But I believe God has taken the initiative in creation. I do not believe that there is a person here that is here by the random process of billions and billions and billions and billions of years. I believe you were made in the image of God, that Almighty God breathed into human beings the breath of life and i believe god has chosen and taken the initiative in revelation that he's chosen to reveal himself this is who i am this is who you are i am righteous you are unrighteous the only way to bridge the gap is for god who is righteous to become a human being and to go to the cross to pay for all of their unrighteousness and glory to god he paid it all amen there's not one drop if you want to understand it this way for the righteous there's not one more drop of the flood to come there's not one more sulfur to fall right it's all been poured out on christ on the cross that's what he's saying when he's saying my god my god why have you forsaken me he's forsaken christ god the father forsook his son so you would not be forsaken the temple the curtain was torn in the curtain of the temple was torn in two and jesus said it is finished what is finished judgment's finished hope is not judgment won't come hope is christ stood judged in our place so that god's rescue of those made righteous by faith in Christ is certain, friends. It is certain. I know, I know. You could kind of maybe look around and say, you, you can uh, uh, understand a little bit with Noah, a little bit with Lot, how they were ridiculed, made fun of, called judgmental, and called a joke in their generation. And the same will happen with you. But our rescue is complete. You shall not surely die is one way you could live But God's the only one who has the right to use the word surely. And here's how he used it. Speaking through the prophet Isaiah. Surely he has carried our griefs and borne our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken. All we like sheep have gone astray. But he has laid upon him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And that is how your welcome into heaven happens. And I do mean the one without the apostrophe. That's how your welcome into heaven happens, is by his grace through faith in Christ. We have an invitation, and it's twofold. One, the invitation this morning is for the believer 
to examine your life. Are you a herald of righteousness in your own generation? Are you willing to endure the mocking and the scorning and the you're ridiculous and you're uneducated and you're whatever the words are? Are you burdened by the unrighteousness around you and you're not turned into a, um, a harsh critic, you're turned into a grace-giving, heralding, judgment is coming, but Christ has come witness and ambassador of Christ in your generation. Secondly, the invitation is to anyone here that is not a follower of Jesus. Now, I want to use the words that are used of Noah and Lot, that you be someone who gets up and gets out. You get into the ark that is Christ, the only one who can preserve you for the judgment that's to come. You repent, and you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you recognize him as who he is, King of kings and Lord of lords. And this great God Almighty has come, and on the cross, he has taken the wrath that you deserve, and he's done it instead of you. He's atoned for you, and now he will protect you. The invitation is open for public declaration of faith in that Savior, Jesus. Let's stand together, and we're going to pray together. We'll sing together, and we'll respond to the Word of God as we've seen it this morning. Father, help us to understand that it can't be both. It cannot be you shall not surely die and you shall surely die. It cannot be both. Somebody's lying. So I pray you give us discernment to know who it is that's telling the truth. Thank you for Jesus who himself proclaimed that he is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by Him. So we set our hope, we set our heart, we set eternity, not in that there is no judgment, but in that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I pray you'd use this invitation time to help us to be sober-minded and urgent about this eternally significant matter, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.